Tune in. Tune in. Tune in. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game podcast by Golf Saudi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Power of the Game podcast with Golf Saudi. Today's very special guest is a pioneer in the ladies game. Her name is Maha Hadoui. She became the first Arab player to gain playing privileges on the ladies European tour. She made history in that sense and it's a responsibility that she's been learning to shoulder for her entire career. This is a revealing insight into the world of Arab golf, where it came from, where it's headed, and Maha's own journey in the world of professional golf. You're listening to the Power of the Game podcast. I discovered the game very randomly because we live next to a golf course. And my parents just, you know, decided to go there for lunch and I went with them, with my sister. Because at the time I used to do a lot of horse riding. And that weekend, for some reason, I couldn't go and, yeah, ended up at the golf course. Um, my sister and I and a couple of friends were just running around the course, not knowing that it was actually dangerous to do that. <laughs> and um, How old were you? Yeah, the caddy master found us and took us to the driving range. And, and I didn't even want to try because I had this idea that golf was for old people and that it was boring. So I didn't, I didn't even want to try it. I said, no, I'm okay. And I just went back to the clubhouse. And that's when my mom told me, well, you've never tried it. So why don't you give it a try? Then you can say you don't like it. And my parents don't play golf. Nobody in the family played golf. So right. yeah, I then tried. And then I really, really liked it. Especially that, you know, I had friends with me and, and my sister. And, and yeah, I just really enjoyed it from the start. And that is, I guess, a notification to all parents out there to say that, you know, give it a go, essentially. Because oh, if, yeah. if your mum had just gone, OK, all right, well, if you don't want to, then fine, we'll do something else. Then you'd never have discovered golf and you'd never have made a career in the game. I mean, it's amazing, it's isn't crazy. it? That is it's crazy. It's crazy how small things like this can can have such an impact on someone's life. And and I mean, I I would understand if my parents played golf, but they never knew anything about golf or were interested in golf. I remember at the time there we had the Hassan II trophy, which was like in the in the palace course, just about a mile from my parents' house. And I remember we used to go every year to the tournament, but would not watch a single shot of golf. We would just go to buy socks because they had like the cutest little socks. Um and and eat some fries because they had the best fries. <laughs> and we never ever like even looked at the at the golf um and then for my from my mom to actually say you know give it a try and then you can say you don't like it that was actually really smart because i mean even she didn't know that it was it was it was really cool to play golf yeah, but it's it's about having an open mind because you know we've spoken to quite a few people uh, quite a few you know of your own peers on this on this podcast we've had Emily Pedersen on we've spoken to Olivia Cowan Charlie Hull and and various other individuals on the on the ladies european tour and and the LPGA tour and a lot of them had enthusiasts in the family whether it was um you know whether it was siblings or whether it was parents who already played there was that kind of existing imperative and sort of initiative to push them into the game as well. And and for you to kind of do it, for your mum to be open-minded first and foremost about the sport, and then for you to kind of off your own bat, 
just kind of get into it is it shows a great deal of kind of um, ingenuity and, and, and taking the initiative, which I guess is is kind of without the sort of golfing history in this part of the world in the Middle East. That That's kind of required, isn't it, for, for golf yeah, to kind of really you, take mean, root here? Most people have never, you know, played golf or don't know much about the game. So they have to be curious and they've got to give it a try for it to, to actually grow as a sport. And, and that's what I always tell people. When I meet people, I, I tell them, you have to give it a try. Um, and I know most of the people I actually speak to and people my age uh, that actually, you know, they know I play golf. And, and I get so many messages saying, oh, my God, I just tried yesterday and it's so much fun or it's a lot harder than I thought. And I get so many messages like that from, from people who are actually very surprised how fun it can be i suppose for the for the arab world it, it's all about building a culture and and an investment and support from the likes of of um, of golf saudi and the aramco team series and, and the ladies first initiative all of those things are, are going to contribute and lay the sort of building blocks to to sort of build that foundation but i remember when i was a kid I mean, as well as obviously falling in love with the game and, and getting a buzz out of out of playing and, and hitting those good shots every now and again, of course, didn't happen very often back back when I was a kid. But, you know, <laughs> watching watching on TV, you know, the Masters for me, I remember staying up way past my bedtime to watch Nick Faldo and Greg Norman and those guys in the 1990s play the Masters. So for you, Maha, what was your inspiration? What was... Who, who were you? Were you watching anyone on TV at that point? What was kind of driving you? What, what, what was kind of really maybe allowing you to dream in the world of golf? Well, to be fair, um, you know, I started like as a little girl. I mean, I was 13 and I was playing, you know, just in Agadir. And then whenever there was a bigger tournament, I had to go to Rabat. So first of all, for me, it was going to that big course and and you know going to the capital almost and and going to that big course to play tournaments and watching better players than me and watching you know there was two uh women professional golfers that were moroccan at the time that were competing against the men in the national pro tour so for me it was very like motivating to watch them and i really wanted to to do the same and then obviously we had the Hassan II Trophy and Lala Merriam Cup. And I always, every year, I used to beg my dad to take me. And I was watching, you know, ladies European tour players play in, the, in that tournament. So for me, having the, the local inspiration of those two professional golfers playing in the national events and being able to see all the international players coming to play that was a big 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 motivation because to be fair i never really watched golf on tv i would watch tiger um yeah and i was you know i was very obsessed like with every tournament that was going on at the time and i mean he was unbelievable but um it's never you weren't like, tuning it's, in it's, to the lpga every week is what you're saying no i wasn't back then i wasn't and and to me it was just having that tournament happen in Morocco that make it, that made it seem more real. Um, and that really made me want to, you know, keep playing and play more tournaments and, and, and hopefully turn pro one day. 
And how did you bridge that gap, Maha? Because when you come from a country like Sweden or the UK or Spain and, and you're and you're in the system, if you're if you're a junior player in one of those big golfing countries in the US, for example, where you're competing against your your kind of the best in class, if you like, and, and you're having success against them and you're always measuring yourself against a barometer that is reliable. So that when you get to the kind of the end of your amateur journey and you know that you've you've done you've maybe played a uh, you know a Curtis Cup or you've played a Walker Cup or whatever it may be you kind of go okay uh, I'm I'm this good so I, I I've proven to myself that against X Y and Z these kind of players I can compete and I can I can beat them and you know I, I can I can make it I can I can actually turn pro and and actually make a living out of it how did you kind of um, build up your own belief your own belief in yourself without perhaps that sort of very, very deep infrastructure of kind of competitive uh, challenges in front of you, if that makes sense? Yes. Well, to be fair, at the start, I really had no idea. And I thought, you know, I started playing and then quickly I started beating, you know, girls and guys that had started um, long, you know, way before me. And then, you know, I went to Rabat and I played the few you know national tournaments and i did okay and i did quite well and and my dad at the time really insisted that i would go to europe and play uh the international amateur events junior events and i remember uh when i went to play the first one i was terrified because i i had no idea what to expect uh and i i clearly didn't think i was good enough uh because you know you always think people are so much better somewhere else. Right. And I had no self to, no one to to play against, to know like, this is the level I'm expected to be. Uh, so yeah, I started playing a lot of events in France, in, you know, the internationals of Belgium and all those events. And I I did quite okay. And, and that's when I thought, okay, well, this is, this is, this is something achievable. This is something I can do. And that actually gave me a lot of motivation at the time and really made me want to play more golf. And was that a moment where you you kind of resolved to turn professional? No. Um, I think I, like I had it as a dream, obviously, and I really wanted to play professional. But it's really after I, before before leaving for the US. That's when I really decided that's what I wanted. Um, because at when I had my baccalaureate, so I was 18, it was a decision between going, staying in Morocco to study, going to Europe to study, or going to the US. And if I had stayed in Morocco or left for, for France, which was the plan, I wouldn't have been able to play golf. So that's when I, I really started thinking and I thought, you know, I really want to keep going with this and I want to turn professional and the only way I can do that is going through through the US and actually being able to play golf and study at the same time. Right. So it was kind of one of those crossroads moments where you knew that that, that whatever you chose at that point was going to define whatever you ended up doing and, and that and obviously I guess golf was was in your heart, right? Yes. I mean I, I couldn't see myself not playing. Um and re I'm I'm really in love with the game and I really enjoyed it back back then as well and and I thought oh do I see myself because I at that point I had a, 
um, scholarship in France in a really, really good school, uh, but just for studying. And I thought, if I do that, that's me completely giving up on golf. And and that's when I thought, no, I can't, I, I can't do that. I've got to, I've got to try to, sorry, <laughs> I've got to try to actually, you know, turn professional or at least get an education that will let me do that later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you, what was the reaction in, in Morocco, Maha? Because you, you basically, you became the first yeah. Arab player to join the, the ranks of the ladies European tour. So that I'm sure created a lot of media interest and, and I'm sure it created a bit of a reaction at home as well. What was, was there one? Uh, well, when I played Q school, um, I had like, a. Um, a lot of pressure on that one because I remember my mom said, listen, I know you love golf and I know this is what you want to do, but you've, you know, you went and got an education in the U S and now you've got to get an actual job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not a job that actually costs you a lot more than you're making. Um, so, you know, I went to Q school and, and I knew at that point that I really had to make it and I got through and I remember I like it's crazy it's like it was yesterday but my sister everyone was so happy and I was just it just felt normal to me like because I had this goal and I had worked towards that goal and to me it was just the start of something mm. rather than a big achievement itself I don't know if that makes sense yeah so I was just very happy to actually start a new journey uh, but I knew the job still had to be done. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was a big deal, and you know I was very excited to start. You know, in 2013. But yeah, there was a lot of media uh, involvement. People, you know, I got a lot of messages from people. Uh, it it was really it was really great. Yeah, because I remember famously Rory McIlroy, in fact, in an interview that we did in, on our show of years ago, this is he, he sort of talked about, look, he said, I, when I grew up dreaming about winning golf tournaments, I was, uh, you know, my, my, my ambition was to, to be a successful golfer. It wasn't about having responsibilities beyond that. And um, when you reach a certain stature in the game, you do inherit, whether you like it or not, certain kind of expectations from others and a certain sense of responsibility and I suppose the question for you Maha is was that did you have that sort of sense that oh not only am I uh, turning professional and I'm embarking on my own personal career which I as an individual you know have have a great deal of stock in but I'm also the first Arab player on the ladies European tour so I'm, I'm a bit of an ambassador in that sense I'm kind of I, I am kind of part of of a wider initiative to potentially grow the game in the Arab world. Is that something you felt at all? Yes, definitely. And it's something, you know, I felt since the start and I, it's something I've carried with me for a long time. And I think uh, it did cost me a lot because maybe I, I looked at it as I was very proud, obviously of, of, you know, being the only Arab on tour, but at the same time, sometimes it felt like a burden right because you know in tournaments like in morocco for example like i knew that this was an important event and i knew that you know i had to do well and i really wanted to do well but sometimes you know you put too much pressure on yourself and it's something that that has happened to me for a long time until i realized okay well 
you know, maybe I'm carrying something else with me, but this still needs to be my project. I still need to do this for me. Um, and, you know, this is exactly what happened at the first Olympics I played. You know, I went and it's, you know, I never played as an amateur. I never went to the world championships because there weren't any other girls. The world amateur championships, I never played in those. Um, and there's a lot of team events that I never played as an amateur. So I never had that feeling of really representing my country. And then the Olympics happened in Rio and you know, the, the responsibility and the burden really felt big and I got overwhelmed. And I think it's since that point that I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm really proud of being the only one, uh, but I need to do this for me. And obviously if I do it for me and I do it well for me, then I will be a better ambassador yeah. for my region or for my country. I can't even imagine it, Mark, because you're the only representative in the Arab world. I mean, it's it's a heck of a weight to carry on your shoulders. And I was. I can't even one. I can't even conceive of, you know, representing Morocco at, in Rio. And I know you did it in Tokyo as well. And, and I'm sure that was a slightly different experience because of the, the fact that it was just a very different Olympics and it was your second one. But, you know, um, yeah, the pressure, the pressure on your shoulders to to not only not only Morocco, but then the Arab world in general. That's a big that's a big area with a lot of people invested in in sort of how you do. So you're absolutely right. You've got to be able to unburden yourself from that. You've got to be able to play with freedom and, and kind of uh, and be able to focus entirely on what you need to do. Because as you say, because otherwise you start playing not to miss or not to mess up. And that's not how you play good golf. No, no. If you get the second you get defensive, right? It's um, that's uh, even anyone who plays that game will know. The second you yeah. start tightening up and you get a bit defensive is just a recipe for the wheels to come off. So it's Definitely. just kind of. So so, what's your mindset now, Maha? I mean, you've you've been on tour a while now. Um, you know, uh, you're kind of getting to the stage now where have you kind of changed your focus or your or your kind of mental kind of outlook on on how things are. Well, to be honest, this is my 10th year now on tour. Um, so it's been a while. <laughs> and um, first of all, this year, I'm very happy because for the first time, I can actually say I'm not the only Arab anymore. Um, Ines Lakladesh from Morocco. Uh, she's from uh, Mohamedi or Casablanca. Okay. And I've known her since she's little because... Uh, I remember when I played the Arab Championships, she was, she, I think she was like 12 years old when she played it, um, one of my last ones. Uh, and she just got her LET card. So, I mean, for me, it's really a new page and, and we're going to be two Moroccans playing on tour this year. And to me, that is a huge, huge statement. Again, you know, two women are going to be representing the Arab world in golf. And to what extent did did your kind of trailblazing, Maha, inspire her her kind of drive to, to make it on tour? Has she had conversations with you to that effect? To be fair, like I, I got a phone call from her a few weeks ago, you know, just to to check how I'm doing and, you know, just to chat. And she did tell me that. And, you know, I got really happy. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that. I wouldn't say that myself. Like, I can't say 
you know, <laughs> of inspired people. I don't know. But yeah, I know for her mean. to tell me that, I'm, uh, you know, I was very touched. And, and if that's something I had a part of, then I'm very, very proud and very happy. Again, it's not something you can influence, is it? It's it's a byproduct of of your passion for the game and the fact that you've you've gone out there and sort of you've you've pursued your dreams and and that's and that's inspired someone else. And as you quite rightly say, you know, you're very self-deprecating. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't claim ownership of that. But it's always nice when sort of someone someone pops up and says, "Yeah, I've," <laughs> you know, you've you've really yeah, definitely. Helped, I was helped very touched way. by that, and I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's it's something I'm really happy about. And again, um, I really hope there's going to be more players from the region on tour. I get I get a lot of really nice messages, actually, from girls and guys, you know. And and it's something, even though I, I really just played golf and pursued my passion, to hear that it's helped or given ideas to other people, then for me, that's that's a great achievement. And of course, the Arab world is is a heck of a big place. I mean, there's throughout the Middle East and North Africa. There's a lot of different countries. There's a lot a lot of different federations, all with kind of vested interests in the game. But in the ten years that you've spent on tour, Maha, have you seen much change in the way of infrastructure? Have you seen much change in the way of? Uh, and I guess this is a broader question because we are going to touch on Saudi Arabia in just a few moments' time because that's what they're doing is very unique. But in the Arab world itself. How have things evolved in the last decade? Well, back in the days when I started, I'll, I'll talk a lot about Morocco because that's really what I know. But when I first started, I remember not going to the world championships because there wasn't any other girl. I know that just before COVID, they had to hold a qualifier to send the girls. And to me, that shows the the improvement there's been, how it's evolved and, and how many girls are actually, you know, very serious and, and good at playing golf. And if I look at the other Arab countries, like there weren't many women playing. I know that now when I look at the Arab championships, there's a lot of girls that play. When I, when we play pro-ams in, in, I mean, like in Saudi, I, I played in the program. I played with a few Saudi girls. And it's something, even when we played back then in Dubai, my first few years on tour, uh, we never really had the chance to play with local girls. And it's something today that is very common uh, all across the Arab countries we play in. So to me, that shows that before it was holding an event and it was you know, promoters or countries and federations were holding events. But now they're holding events and including local girls or local even male players. And that's that's what the improvement is about, because now it's very inclusive. Yeah. And it's not seen as this kind of outsider sport that, that is played by expatriates living in these countries. It's it's well exactly. That's a key shift. And I, I've lived in the Middle East for a long time, so I've, I've seen that happen to to a perhaps a slightly lesser extent in the UAE than say the kind of the ambition that they've laid out in in Saudi for example and and obviously with Morocco there's there's more of a culture there for golf but um yeah you're right i mean it's again it's it's changing and it 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 takes a couple of generations doesn't it let's face it i mean it's not it's not something that happens in 2 to 3 years cuz you need to build a structure 
You need to build um, not just places to play, but coaching facilities that are welcoming, that are inclusive, that make it easy for people to take up the game. And then you need to wait for talent to be sort of nurtured, if you like. And that takes Absolutely. that take that takes years. That 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 doesn't take you know. I'm not sure it can happen overnight. Oh, definitely. And that's that's what's hard to explain sometimes. You know, uh, a lot of people will say, oh, but there's so many great courses and there's so many practice facilities. But that's not how you, you know, you've got to be patient with those things because to have the next champion, you, you need you need a lot of, you need to learn the culture of golf as well, of sports. And and that comes with years and, and trying. Um I just, I just don't believe it can happen overnight. And I feel like we're quite lucky to have so many great Arab players already. Like having, you know, two um, ladies European tour players, having, you know, really good players from, from like I saw Ahmed Skik uh, is now in the top 50 in the world amateur rankings. Yeah. Um, you know, we have great players from Morocco, like Ahmed Morjan who's won a, a quite a good tournament in Bahrain. Uh, Shergo is doing really good as well from Jordan. So yeah, Saud, we Saud from, al-Sharif and, and Omar. Saud, um, absolutely. All the Saudi players. Othman al-Muller as well, of course. Of course. I mean, there's so many great players that are representing their countries today. And, and of course, at some point, there's going to be one who wins a big event or there's going to be a younger one that's actually a future superstar. But, you know, it didn't happen overnight in, in Sweden or in the US. You know, it took years and it took culture and it took work and it took time. How big a story would it be, Maha, if if, if an Arab player does win a, a really big event, a kind of international, an event that would garner international headlines? Is How much of a catalyst is that, do you think? Oh, that would be unbelievable. I mean, that would break so many barriers, even just mental barriers. Um, I think that because we don't really, unfortunately, we don't really have that culture of sport, we tend to limit ourselves. Um, and I think the, the moment someone will win, it's going to make others win as well. Because you see someone do it mm. and then, you know, it just happens. It happened in a lot of countries. Like you, you see it when you have, a really good player from, say, I don't know, from France who starts winning, that kind of pulls all the other ones because they can see that it's doable, it's possible. Well, Ireland, and Ireland is a great example. You know, Harrington and then Graham McDowell and then Darren Clark and Rory McIlroy, all in the all in the space of two years. And they had, exactly. I don't think a Northern Irish male had won a major in however long it was it was years it was decades and then suddenly three in the space of 18 months You're exactly right. that's that's a great example and it, it kind of it's so it releases like this this sort of mental or this invisible shackle if you like that that is just exactly lifted. it's like a, a, a exactly it's like a, to me it's really mental because we really have the capabilities and i mean you know we can do it it's just that you know when something has never been done before it's always harder and there's always a lot more pressure to actually break that mess. 
This is the Golf Saudi podcast, of course, Maha. And, and I remember seeing you in 2018 at the launch of the Royal Greens Golf and Country Club over yes. there. Um, so that's what, four years, not even, not quite four years ago that that course was inaugurated. It, it's pretty crazy to think that in four years, not only have they had, not only have they had, well, what was a DP World Tour event is now an Asian Tour event on the men's side, a Ladies European Tour event, which has now branched out into a series, and then initi- initiatives that have basically spanned the top level all the way through down to the grassroots of the game. I mean, what is your own perception of what has unfolded in the last three or four years over in Saudi Arabia? To be fair, it's pretty crazy. It is massively uh, crazy. It's crazy when you think about it. It's moved so quick. I mean, I would you know, I went for the opening of Royal Greens and then went for the DP World Tour. I mean, back then, European Tour event. And I never thought this would go so big, so quick. Um, and it's been it's been great. I mean, for us, uh, for the ladies events, it's been huge. We went from having, you know, one event to this, you know, really big event followed by the team series and then having so many team series all over the world. And yeah, it's 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 really moving quick and moving forward and I'm I'm really excited about it. And I think what's interesting about it is the approach that that's kind of this top to bottom idea. Uh because, you know, I in in the UAE for example, a lot of investment was made in the professional game by way of kind of promoting Dubai or Abu Dhabi as, as sort of destinations. You know, you bring a tournament which is high profile and and the players come, the, the, the best players in the world come and play and it, and, it, and it draws an attention, but it doesn't really do anything for the grassroots. But but Golf Saudi have gone about things in a bit in a, in a very unusual and very sort of progressive way because they've brought in these they've sustained they've they've invested in these in these top level events that you've just spoken about but they've also got say the ladies first initiative which is yeah. introducing women and children into golf so they've actually staffed a whole kind of roster of coaches throughout the the nation where they're going to ensure that that the golf is brought to schools and how how sort of fundamental to the long term success of golf in the nation do you think that is i think that's the only way to do it to be fair because if, again, we spoke about that earlier, uh, people are not going to get into golf if, you know, you don't hand them a club or you don't show them that it's it's something they can try and like. So having a big tournament is going to go on TV. People are going to know about it, but it's not really going to make them want to play. Um, and to me, that's the way to go. I mean, as a, as a professional, when I go somewhere, you know, I go play a tournament somewhere of course, I'm happy to see that it's actually going to help people discover the game and get into the game somewhere else. It's not just about going somewhere to yeah. be, you know, it's going somewhere, taking the money and then going on to the next event. I, I, I really hope that it's something bigger than that. And, and that's what I like to see in, in Saudi. This is what we're seeing in Saudi. You know, I played with um, a few girls from the Ladies First program, the first year I played with them again, uh, th- I mean, last year. So you see that there's that people are really actually still playing the game and that they got into golf thanks to that. And to me, that's a huge win, huge, huge win for golf. And seeing kids that had that knew nothing about golf, they're actually, you know, now following the game and coming to watch the tournament and then understanding uh, the rules and, and what's going on. Um, 
and and that's that's how you know all the Arab countries could grow the game going through schools. I know that they're you know um, I had given a clinic to and a lesson to a few uh, teachers, uh, middle school teachers, I think, and they were to then you know show that to the girls at school. And to me, this is how you introduce to the game to new people. Yeah. And girls specifically, Maha, because, you know, obviously it differs from country to country, but but in the Arab world, sporting opportunities for, for girls have, have not been maybe as, as easy or accessible as they have in, in some other countries. So for there to be a push in Saudi Arabia, of, of all places where, where let's be honest here, um, it was probably most frowned upon for, for girls historically to, to indulge in, in sporting activities, that that sort of rewrites, I suppose, what what the common perceived notion is. That's that's completely rewriting, uh, you know, people's perceptions, isn't it? Yeah. Well, to me, it really starts at school, uh, when and changing also the mindset. You know, when at school, sports are put at an important place, then it changes the way parents and kids look at sports. Uh, I remember. You know, you would hear a lot when you had a bad, you know, grade at sports at school, then, you know, your mom or your dad would say, oh, it's okay, it's just sports. But then when it becomes important and just as important as, you know, math or physics, then, you know, kids give it a different um, importance. And then they get more into sports and they respect it more. And to me, having golf introduced to girls at school it it normalizes it it makes it something important period uh i mean when i turned professional a lot of people told me oh but that's not a job and i remember saying are football players not you know working is it not a job oh but that's different why is it because they're men and I remember whenever I said that, they're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. So it's really about changing the perception people have. Yeah. I mean, that God, honestly, again, I don't, I've always thought of it in a different way, but, you know, you, you need to kind of uh, maybe educate oneself as to different points of view. And, and you're absolutely right because it will, it will take time. But I think, as you say, school is very important. As a, as a breeding ground for changing mindsets and, and changing a particular culture's approach to a certain thing. And and I think we're on the right track. I mean, the Ladies First initiative, and I, I think it's maybe early, to, a little early to say from a sort of project perspective as to, as to how much this is taking hold, but maybe in the visits that you've made to Saudi Arabia, you can comment on how things are shifting and how things are growing at a rapid rate. I mean, just... In, in terms of, of girls watching, there were so many more the second year than the first year. And even, you know, the girls that played in the program, there's quite a few that played in the program last year compared to the year before. And that's how you grow things slowly. Um, you know, they get interested in the game. They, you know, start to play. And then families get involved. I saw a lot of families that came to watch and, and you know, went to watch the clinics and 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 this is how you grow the game slowly, but sure, for sure, it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to be something quick, but at least it's a move in the right direction. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Maha, what about 2022 for, for yourself? What's the what, what's the kind of, um, what are you hoping to get out of the year? I'm not talking necessarily about finishes and that kind of thing, but what, what would what would constitute a good year for you in, in 2022? Uh, to be fair, Obviously, you know, you, you go out there wanting to play good golf. But for me, a good year would really just be, it's going to be a very busy schedule. So really managing my time and and just being happy out there and, you know, doing what I love, having a really good time on the golf course. I think sometimes, you know, you get too carried with, with results mm. and too carried with, you know, your long-term goals that you forget that, you know, it's just a game you enjoy and, and want to have fun with. Yeah, I mean, as a job, as a profession, it's not a bad one. Let's face it. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, there's uh... definitely. <laughs> That's what I say. I say, I always say that. I mean, I feel really lucky to, you know, be playing golf as my job. I'm, I'm doing the thing I love the most and as a job. So I no complaining here. And the Ladies European Tour schedule has been bolstered enormously by by the Aramco support. The team series has kind of added a lot of a lot of cash and a lot of uh, a lot of funds and prize money into into the schedule as well. I mean, I remember oh probably ten years ago now the Ladies European Tour was 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 experiencing quite a few challenges when it came to events and and the changes to the schedule. But I know Alex Armas has done an amazing job. I mean, it's it's actually the future's bright for the tour as well, isn't it? It's very bright. I mean, coming from, you know, the difficulties that there were like six years ago to how the schedule is looking today. And I mean, we went from having, you know, a year where we only had like seven, nine tournaments to a year this year where we're obviously going to have to pick events. And to me, that shows how much growth there can be in women's golf in general. I mean, Men's golf is a lot bigger than women's golf today, but how much bigger can it get? There's everything to be done in women's golf because there's still a lot of margin. And you know, the Ladies European Tour is showing that today. I mean, it's it's gone from, you know, pretty weak schedule a few years ago to a really strong one now. And, and you know, there's new tournaments all the time. Price funds are getting bigger and and it's it's showing also commitment and the belief that promoters have towards women's golf. And in terms of, I know that the, the, the ladies European Tour is is now strategically aligned with the the LPGA over over in the states, and and of course the LPGA plays a, a global schedule as well. But I think with more investment in the in the LET, the the quality gap will be bridged as well, and it, it will become probably a little easier for ladies European tour pros to transition if they wanted to, to playing a, an LPGA schedule, I, I guess. De with the Definitely. Because yeah. obviously there's going to be a lot more events. The quality of the courses is getting better. Uh, the LET is making also the courses a lot longer. And, and, you know, you can see it just from the Q school, the LPGA Q school last year, there's a lot of LET girls that made it through. Um, and obviously you know, the more you play, the better you get. And it's something that we kind of lacked before on the Ladies European Tour. But with the partnership with the LPGA, there's a lot of things that are being done so that the gap becomes smaller. And it definitely is becoming smaller. And a career highlight for you, Maha, was it was it representing Morocco at the at the Olympic Games in, in 16 and 20? Or, or does it something else bring to mind? 
yeah, I would say Tokyo was a was a highlight. I really enjoyed it, and you know, being able to have a hole in one um, that <laughs> yeah. was a really good one. I wouldn't say Rio was a highlight. I I re- did not enjoy Rio. I, it was more of a nightmare week for me, but. <laughs> But again, you know, you learn from things like this. Sure. And to me, it was really important to go to Tokyo just to get that out of my system and not make the same mistakes again. Listen, Maha, we obviously wish you all the best of luck for, for 2022. And, and thank you so much for joining us on the, the Power of the Game podcast with, with Golf Saudi. And um, really looking forward to following your progress. And, and, uh, and also now the fact that there are two Moroccans plying their trade yes. on the Ladies European Tour. Arab golf in the women's game is moving in the right direction definitely is a massive thank you to Maha Hadoui for sparing her time to chat to us on the Power of the Game podcast fascinating insight from Maha on Arab golf on her own career and of course we wish her all the very best for the remainder of the season loads more coming soon on the Power of the Game podcast we'll have more special guests we'll have more episodes on the way so don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to stay tuned to our channel talk to you soon